Turn with you to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through the first 10 verses of chapter 3. So in the insert we gave to you, there's a printed out scripture text, as well as I encourage you to bring your Bible so you can track with us when we look at context things. Let me say a couple things before we jump in. Um, first, immediately after our service today, right up here up front, for those that are led, we're going to have a time of prayer for Bonnie Hecht. Uh, and Bonnie, it's good to see you this Lord's Day, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to do that. Bonnie has been diagnosed with stage three uterine cancer, and in communicating with her and Mark this week, one of the things that James says in chapter five of James is, any of you sick? If any of you sick, let him ask the elders. Lay their hands on you, anoint you with oil and pray. And so you don't have to, but we want to invite anybody that desires to come immediately after service. We're going to come up here and two or three elders are going to lead our, us corporately in prayer just that the Lord, if it's his will, would miraculously heal her body, do so through the treatment that she'll be receiving, but that we would trust in his sovereign will and he would lift up our sister in this time and her family. So please come and join us immediately right after the benediction as you may be led. Now, Toward our time here in the text, allow me to say this. I think there's going to be two or three things, particularly, that might stand out to you. Maybe it's one thing, maybe it's all three of the things uh, that are on my mind that I think are kind of hard to deal with. Uh, maybe they won't be hard for you, but they're hard for someone you love. So I'm going to try to note those things. I was, I was running this morning, uh, and I was thinking there are, there are two or three things that I know just hit me very squarely. And I just want you to be prepared for what some of those are, because I think the, 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 the Lord is, and his, and his teaching in the scriptures, the gospel, it's an equal, equal opportunity offender of all of us. It's also a perfect comforter to all of us in the things that are exposed to us when we study his word. So just there may be two or three things, and I hope to point those out to you. Now, to connect to what we were talking about last week before we read, last week, the passage that we were in the, the last part of chapter 2 there, showed us a glaring contrast. Maybe you were here, maybe you weren't, but let me describe that again. There are those who continually discontinue in walking away from the gospel of Jesus. And the scriptures say that that's not how we're supposed to be, not, not those who continually discontinue, but those who have a changeless confession of Christ. We don't stop confessing our need for the gospel that's been revealed to us. God sent his son to bear the curse for sin. He did not stay in the grave. He was resurrected and conquered sin and death for us. That's the simple gospel. Do we continually discontinue in walking away from that? Or do we continually confess it changelessly? That's what we looked at last week. But I've been thinking about it, and this is something I want to say before we start in our text. I think people discontinue from the gospel in one of two directions. Now, last week, what I did is I mainly talked about what I would call a progressive discontinuation from the gospel. Th those who I would say are on the liberal side of things, and they say, I don't need to be saved from the sin that the Bible says is sin. In fact, I can redefine some of those things. I don't think Jesus needed to come and die for that sin. Still call myself a Christian, but I have discontinued from the simple gospel on the progressive side of things. And that's one side of the cliff that people fall off of. And didn't share with, it was in my notes last week, but for time's sake, I left off Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3. Paul says, in the last days, there's going to come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They're going to be proud, arrogant, abusive. Children won't obey their parents. On and on it goes. They won't walk in godliness or holiness. They're going to 
be ungrateful and unholy. They're not going to have any power to their faith. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.9. He says, but they will not get very far. In other words, they will be discontinued. There will be people that fall off the progressive side of the cliff who say, I don't need to be saved from things. I don't have to be holy. I don't have to be godly. And Paul says, here's how you should handle that. Don't get too freaked out. They won't get very far. All right, that's one side. I didn't mention it too much last Sunday, but I've been thinking about the other side of the cliff. If one side is progressivism, just to use that word, I think another side is very biblical, pharisaicalism, right? People who go the other direction, who say, actually, I'm pretty righteous the way I see things. I'm pretty good at keeping God's law. Frankly, I've added things to his law to make sure I never violate his law, and my performance and track record speaks for itself. I don't much need a savior because I don't have much to repent of. The pharisaical side of the cliff. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, he's talking to the, about the Pharisees, the religious legalists. He says this, let them alone. They are blind guides. Let them go. I don't need them to affirm who I am. They don't think they need to be saved because they don't think that they sin. And so as I've been wrestling with it this week, I feel like I've had discussions with people on both sides of that cliff. I feel like I always do as a pastor, I guess. We need to not be freaked out as the church of Jesus when people discontinue from the faith on one of two sides. Some of you may get hit from it more from one side than the other in your work environment or with your family or friends. As a pastor, personally, I feel like I get hit from it on both sides. And it should, it's devastating. Relationships are impacted. You can never satisfy people on either side. If you stick to the authoritative and errant word of God and just keep saying what the scriptures seem to teach and say, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus more than anyone, I'm the chief of sinners, it's not a good, good enough answer for people on either side. And so that was the one of the things I was going to say might stand out to you just as we turn to what he said, John says next. If you feel like you live in distress in ways you never have had to before, I don't think it's just because I'm finally growing up that I feel it with you. I'm almost 45. I don't think it's because I'm suddenly in the middle of my life and I'm seeing the world differently. Maybe that's the case. But our culture and people walking away from the simple teaching of the gospel, it, it is like a waterfall on both sides. And you will not be favored by many people in this world if you confess Christ and your need for him only. Revealed to you in, in his authoritative word that is perfect and doesn't change and reveals to us his will. So that's one of the things I want to make sure we just realize because what John says next now builds on that. He says, you need to then remember it's the last hour and continue abiding in Christ. So that's where the passage begins. Little children abide in him so that when he appears, because it's the last moment of the last hour, he's going to come. When he comes, you don't need to shrink back in shame if you've confessed and abided in the simple gospel all your days. So let's stand together and read where John goes next, building on what we looked at last Lord's Day. Verse 28 of chapter 2, hear God's word read. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of God. Amen. Father, would you help us now? Apply this to our lives in Christ we ask. Amen. You may be seated. I've already preached before starting to read the text, so my bad. But that's an introduction I think that might be helpful. Let me tell you one of the sad realities of preaching. Um, Preachers can really muck up super clear things in a text of the Bible. Don't tell me how often you felt that here, but I know we can do it. We preachers can make the very clear word of God unclear. We can say things that are true and helpful, but we can make what is clear murky. This past week, we had to clean the pool. Before we started cleaning the pool, it looked super clear. But in order to clean it out, we had to go in and stir stuff up to get the stuff out. And very quickly, what was clear becomes unclear. Preachers can do the same. We stir something up to help it to be applied. And before we know it, people can't even see what's in the text anymore. I don't want that to happen this morning. Um, I tend to monologue in my professional life. It's what I'm doing here with you. I also tend to monologue in my private life, as the seven people over here can attest. And it happens in my life that I'm trying to make a point to my children. Could be a preteen or a teenager, but I've got a clear point to make. And as I make that point, I begin to give excessive, unnecessary details to drive that clear point home. Maybe you've done this at home. I begin to provide hypotheticals. I look back into the annals of our family history to provide precedence. I might even have an innocent passerby, one of my other children, walking by the kitchen. They have nothing to do with this conflict. And I pull them in, begin to address their behavior, and then I start making another point. And you can see the children's eyes glaze over like he's doing it again. And Corey and her love will say to me, Jim, what are you saying? And my answer is, I'm making a point. Stop mucking it up. This text has a clear point, and I don't want to muck it up. But I do want you to understand that if we don't have this point applied by the Holy Spirit, we're going to be in a very sad place. This point is crystal clear. In fact, it's so clear that as I read the passage, 
verse 28 and 29 of chapter 2, and verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3, the bookends of the section we're looking at, they make the point and they reiterate it. We don't want to miss it. And so that's where I want you to track with me first. John writes, little children abide in him, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He's righteous, so if you practice righteousness, you're born of him. Now look in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 3. The same thing is said in an inverse way. Okay? So John says, no one born of God, there's that same word again, born of him, born of God, makes a practice of sinning. That's the inverse of practicing righteousness. For God's seed abides in him. So there's the word abide again. Child of God, practice of sinning or practice of righteousness, and then you have the word abide is repeated. It's said a little differently. Here's what's said in verse 9 of chapter 3. We abide in him because his seed abides in us. What, what does that mean? His seed abides in us. Well, think of God's seed uh, as in the seed of the word, like planted in our souls. First Peter chapter one, kind of like a seed goes into the dirt and a plant comes up. Is that what is meant by seed? Or is the awkward VBS question more what we should be thinking? Seed as in child, as in son, as in that which is deposited into a woman, that a baby would be born. Is that what maybe is the more literal understanding, metaphorical, excuse me, understanding of what we should think? And I think that's where the text would take us. Here's what the Bible is saying, is if we have the seed slash the son of God in us, right? Then we cannot be unrighteous by way of practice because the righteous one lives in us. He's been, his performance has been credited to us, but the seed lives in us. Think of Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, we have been filled in him. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, Christ is in us, the hope of glory. The seed, the Son of God has been planted in us. Do we evidence that by what we practice? And that's where verse 10 goes. John says, it's very clear, those then who are children of God. It should be evident. See that word in verse 10? Those who are children of God. So, I don't want to muck this up. That's a pretty clear point. If you abide in Christ and his seed abides in you, then you practice righteousness more than you continue to practice unrighteousness. You increasingly practice righteousness. And you do not make a habit of practicing sin. Question to start then, if that's the point, is it evident that you are a child of God by what you practice? Is it evident that I am a child of God by what I practice when people see me, when they don't see me? That's the question. We shouldn't muck it up, stir it all up with self-justification of any kind. It's a pretty obvious question. Are you a child of God by what you practice? All right. John's going to make the picture beautiful and super clear. And let's continue on. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, John actually says, I want you to picture it. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. See, behold. This is the same word repeated all throughout the New Testament to kind of just be like, let this take your breath away. Behold, consider it. And when we read in the text, consider what kind of love, this is actually the same Greek phrase in Matthew chapter 8, 
when the disciples see Jesus still the storm? And remember what they say? What kind of a man is this? The creation obeys him. There's the same phraseology here. What kind of love is this? That the Father would give you and I the status of being his adopted children. Now we could look in Galatians chapter 4, other parts of the New Testament, but I want you to factor in what the Bible is saying, that it's the Father's love that is chosen from eternity to make you and I sons and daughters of his through his son Jesus. He's given us all the rights and privileges of being his children, adopted into his family, all because of the love of the Father that we would never have known to ask for, a monergistic, one-directional kind of love. Before you loved me, I loved you. I chose you. That kind of paternal affection is here. And so I did tell you there are a few things I think people might wrestle with or need to think deeply about. The first one was I'm just tired, and you probably are too, of living and confessing Christ only, and people are falling off both sides of the cliff. And they're angry at you for staying on top of the mountain of the simple gospel of Jesus. That's one thing. Here's a second thing. Some of you do not believe that you've received the lavished love of the Father by grace through faith, and there's nothing you have done to earn it. Some of you don't believe you're very lovely. Some of you don't think you're worth the Father's love. Some of you think you had it, but you've now acted in such a way that you, you aren't worthy of it anymore. Like the prodigal son, just treat me as one of your slaves. I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Let this confront you that John says, and so we are. If you're a child of God, you have been made so by the adoption of God because of the Father's love. And this is something you must know, and it's something that you can know. That's what John says. But here's what else he says. It's something you can know, but guess what? It is not something that the world can know. Frankly, the world can't even know you if you're a child of God because of the love of the Father, because the world doesn't think the Father has to love sinners. The world doesn't even think necessarily that there is one God creator who's three persons. So the world can't understand you with your dominant primary status, which is child of God because of the love of the Father, because the world doesn't think it needs the love of the Father, nor does it care what that then does to give you the identity that it gives you as a son of child, child of God. It's an amazing thing that John says, those who do not love or believe in the Father, who don't then know or believe in the Son, they don't have the ability to recognize you then. Not for you as you really are. They may be able to form false ideas about you and your Christianity. They may be able to have some concept of your religiosity and what's important to you. But John says, if they don't know the love of the Father, they can't know the love you've received. So they can't actually know you. Because they didn't know him. It's a powerful thing. But, but the world can't know it. So the world can't know you. But we can know what this then means to us. So look where he goes in verse 2. Beloved, we're God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. This is one of the best sections in all of the Bible. What I just read to you. We 
shall be like him. Don't muck that up. You will be made like Jesus. It's a mystery. I don't understand it all. Whether you're a child, a teenager, a new believer, an old believer, a tired believer, a jaded believer, if you are a child of God because of the love of the Father, then the Bible says that when Jesus appears, you will be made like him. This is unbelievable. Paul calls it a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15. So now you see why we read that section earlier. Because I think 1 Corinthians 15 is almost like a commentary on John, 1 John chapter 3. Paul says, the mystery is flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Jesus' full and final reign. This frame is incompatible with that reality. That's what the Bible says. When I preached on 1 Corinthians 15, which now is back in 2020, so this may be a rehearsal for some of you, because I re-looked at my notes. I'm like, what did we say when we were in that glorious chapter? One of the things I did is I quoted a, a, a section from one of C.S. Lewis's great allegories, The Great Divorce. Are you familiar with this book? 1945, Lewis wrote an allegory about heaven and hell. And in The Great Divorce, what happens is everything in heaven is, quote, much solider than things in our country. Mass and matter are different. So in the allegory, heaven, the grass, the rocks, the trees, the water, they're of a solider reality. So those who come from the earth, when they walk on the grass in heaven, it hurts their feet. Because those who come from the earth, they have like a shadow component to them, almost a translucence, a transparent, ghostly reality. See, what, what the allegory is saying is, in this world, people seem to think this is the earthly life of the real substance. And heaven is the place of the spirit. And people float away on some cloud and have a, a private angel playing a harp to them or something. And Lewis's allegory is saying, that is so upside down. Heaven is going to be the place of the real. If we think this life is of the real, we have it backwards. Heaven and the new earth is going to be the land of substance. This is the, the realm of shadows and illusions and pretensions. We are a shallow people according to the Bible, who must be changed. We must be made compatible with what awaits. So Lewis is just, it's an amazing book. You can read it in two hours this afternoon. That's what John is starting to, to make clear. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus comes, we're going to be changed to have a body like his. Whether we are among those who are still alive on that day or whether we have already died before that day, the, the scriptures say we will all be changed. We know we're children of God now. We know that we've received the credited righteousness of Jesus now. But when that day comes, we will all know solid righteousness, real righteousness, substantive righteousness. How's it going to happen? Well, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, it's going to happen in a twinkling of an eye. In a moment. The Greek word for moment is the word from which we, we get Adam. That which cannot be divided. Twinkling of an eye. It's going to be like a, a, a blink of your eyelash. And we will be changed to be like him. When Paul describes it further, all he can do, he can't really give a perfect picture, but he's going to give contrasts. We just read it this morning. He says, so our new body is going to be imperishable, not perishable. It's going to be glorious, not dishonorable. It's going to be powerful, not weak. 
In other words, right now, what we all have in common is we all have a body characterized by eventual weakness that leads to death. The body that will be raised is going to be characterized by spiritual power that leans into eternal life forever. Paul says the new body we get is going to be spiritual and no longer just fleshly or earthly. We're going to be less connected to the dust from which we return in this body, in this world, and more connected to the spirit of God within us by which we will live forever and ever. All right, so I'm using 1 Corinthians to help you get excited with me. Let's go back to our text. Chapter 2, verse 28. Here's what John says. When that happens, we will have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Let me say this sentence the way I wrote it so I don't mess it up. We sure as heaven will not be ashamed at his coming. We sure as heaven will not be ashamed at his coming. And if that's true, and if that's going to happen, then what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 34? Here's what he says. He says, then wake up from your drunken stupor and stop sinning. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. What does John say in our text? Chapter 3, verse 5, he says it like this. He says, if you know he came to take away sins, if you know that in him there was no sin, if you know that you're going to be made like him, then stop practicing sin. They both say the same thing differently. It's kind of a wake-up text. If the gospel means we're going to be made like him, but the sin we struggle with is, no, what I really want to do is be made like the people around me in the world. I really want to be made like people that are here that don't think they need to be loved by the Father and forgiven of their sin and the Son. We are crazy Christians. We want to be like the world and liked by the world. And yet the gospel says we're going to be made to be like him. That's nonsense is what John is saying in this letter. So we lead to verse 4 to 8 in your outline. I just said, well, there's, we know what the problem is, don't we? The problem is sin. Habitual, hidden, hideous sin. Jesus' righteousness, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. Jesus paid the curse for our, our lawlessness, our sin, and our iniquity. If we abide in him now and he's in us, and if we're going to be made fully like him in the end, then we have to stop practicing what's the opposite of him. By the power of the Holy Spirit that's in you, by the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, the Bible tells us that our sin has already died with him on the cross. So why do you keep making a habit of it? That's what John says. Um, the language here is, is startling to me. I'm going to ask you to let it startle you. Yes, there's one place where it says... what. Don't keep sinning. But you know what scares me the most? Is when the Bible says, stop making a practice of sin. Think about that. If you're an athlete, why do you practice? Because you want to get better at it. And yet the Bible says, Christians, stop practicing sin. Because it looks like some of us, we want to get better at it. We want to be better at hiding it. We want to get more satisfaction from it and, and access what we know is unlawful in such a way that it actually fills us. It never will. But we want to get better at trying to figure out if it might. It's a travesty, the Bible says. 
Are you devoted to any habitual sin such that if you're honest with yourself, it almost looks like you're trying to improve at it? I do think there's some people that are trying to climb a ladder corporately or whatever. So it looks like they're trying to improve at being a jackass, a a jerk. I'm sorry, 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 sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me, seriously. But I mean, Christians being jerks because they want to get better at influencing others and being noticed for it and being awarded for it. That's what John's talking about. It's very heavy. He says, verse 7, little children, let nobody deceive you into thinking we can just keep practicing sin while at the same time believing in the justifying righteousness of, of Jesus. Or at the same time believing that we'll be made like him. Because if you believe you're going to be made like him and you believe you've been credited as righteousness, you want nothing more than to assassinate the sin that assaults you and become righteous like he is right now. So John says it like this in verse 6, the one who keeps on sinning has not seen him. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? The one who keeps practicing sin has not known him. So we live in a world where people fall off one side of the cliff, the progressive side that I'm thinking of, saying, I can be a Christian while embracing sins that the Bible says Jesus had to suffer and die for. I'm embracing what the scriptures say cost him his life. So I'm actually practicing doing something that is in the opposite direction of the righteousness that he came to provide for me. It's a terrible set of verses. Because what John says in his emphatic language, he says, that person's not a child of God. That person is of the devil. We're not charismatic. We're Presbyterian. But when the Bible says that people who do that are of the devil, we need to take that to heart. This is the apostle writing to a church and there are people who are discontinuing from the gospel among the body and there are people who have just discontinued from the body and left. And John says, they're not children of God if they're practicing sin and they've rejected their need of a savior. They're of the devil because you know what the devil did from the beginning? The devil never knew who God was, would never honor and glorify him for who he was. He just wanted to be God instead And the devil has been sinning and trying to convince others to sin from the beginning. So you're of the devil more than you're of God if this describes you. All right. So let's go back to the very end, which is kind of back to the point with the most beautiful emphatic language. Maybe read it with me quietly. Just see these words in scripture. The Bible says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. What a way for the Bible to describe that. It doesn't say must not. That's what I expected to say. It says cannot keep sinning. Just understand that. One commentator says, John is not for one moment saying that a true Christian never sins. He's already warned against that, right? First John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. If you say you have no sin, you're not of God. You have to confess your sin. So this is not about Christian perfectionism in this life. No. 
The commentator continues, although Christians fail and fall, Christians can be forgiven. Must be, but we must remember that such forgiveness is at the expense of the lifeblood of the Son of God. The mark of true gratitude is that we do not keep on sinning. And I think we have to go one step further. It's not just that we're grateful for forgiveness, so now we don't want to sin, and that evidence is the gratefulness. No, the Bible is actually saying, by Christ's work, we are empowered to not sin anymore. So much that we cannot. Let me explain it from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Peter says, Jesus himself bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His work that justified you has killed the sin in you. So you cannot keep sinning. Heard John Piper preach recently. Here's what he said. The only sin you can conquer in this life is a forgiven sin. But don't think for an instant you can't conquer it. And you have to be content just to be forgiven of it. The only sin you can conquer is a sin that is already forgiven because those who are forgiven, the text says, we have seen him and we know him. Why did he come to take away sins? Why did he come to defeat the devil? Why did he come so that his seed would live in you so that you cannot sin anymore as a habit? And so as we kind of let it all culminate, the question that should Rise to the surface is, is this evident in you? Do you right now have confidence that you will be made to be like Jesus because in this life, his seed is in you and you are practicing righteousness and practicing repentance of sin and you are no longer habitually sinning as if you're trying to get good at it. It's the last hour. The pressure is, is in this moment. The next thing that will happen in history is he will appear and we will be made like him. Is it evident in this last hour that you are a child of God? David Jackman says the habit of righteousness is the proof of relationship. Is it evident that you are a forgiven Free, righteous in Christ, child of God. Not sinless, quick to repent when you see it. No Christian is sinless, but no Christian either is a habitual sinner. That's what John's saying. I want to ask you this week to name sins that you feel a habitual pull into. that you feel you wake up in the morning and you might even struggle to prioritize them. Certain thoughts that you give first place. Certain actions that you will schedule almost on your hidden calendar. Things you premeditate about. Write a list. Invite another brother and sister in Christ into that to walk with you. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is you and I need to weigh whether or not we're on Satan's travel team roster. Who plays travel team sports, but one who plans to be the best. And we've done travel teams. 
and you sell your soul. Can't ever miss practice. And by the way, don't just practice when you're here. Practice when you're at home. Practice when no one's watching. Dear God, if some of us are on Satan's travel team roster while we worship each Lord's Day, giving exaltation to Jesus, it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? So I want to ask you to list those things and pray through them. Next thing I want you to do is consider how you are practicing righteousness by God's Spirit at work in you. Consider the fruits of the Spirit that you have a desire to grow in and the Holy Spirit put that desire in you because you are a child of God. One of those desires is to repent and believe the, the gospel, but the other desires, is, as Paul says, are, are to do things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. I'm not asking you to see which list is longer. That would make you pharisaical. Be careful. But what do you practice? Ask yourself. Write it down. Is it evident that you are a child of God now and that your flesh has been crucified with Jesus? Is it evident that you are quick to humbly repent and hate your sin to enlist the Holy Spirit's power and the help of other believers when you feel a pull to start practicing something that will destroy you? Is it evident that you are beginning to look more like Jesus without pride, but in honest humility? Is it evident that you are anticipating being made like him? That's the good news of the gospel. Would you abide in Christ with me? Let's pray. Father, each time we study a different book of the Bible, I know that there are going to be truths in it that are hard to preach, hard to believe. But, oh God, we thank you for this inspired, inerrant word, 1 John. We thank you that we can herald the gospel of Jesus, that our sins have been already killed on the cross with him if we believe by grace through faith, by your Spirit's work in us. So that's the gospel we hold to. But would you cleanse us of inconsistent habits, of patterns that actually deny what we believe to the point that we should question whether we believe it at all. We ask for your help. Would you make us holy and righteous, set apart people for your glory and for our good? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.